Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit that granted us repentance unto salvation. Your Holy Spirit who is the seal of our salvation. Your Holy Spirit who is guiding us into truth. Your Holy Spirit who has given gifts to your church for the building up of your church, for the glory of your name. Lord, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to help us to understand the nature of these spiritual gifts that we're going to examine. And Father, we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would illuminate these passages of Scripture that we would rightly understand the reality of spiritual gifts and their proper use. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to properly exercise the spiritual gifts that you have given us for the building of this church for the glory of your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you're aware, we're we're doing a, a short series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. We're, we're looking at the gifts as listed in 1 Corinthians 12, but also uh, in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. And David and I felt that this was necessary because most people don't know what the spiritual gifts are, let alone what their gifts are or how they're to be used in the church. Last week we focused on three offices that have been given to the church, that of apostles and prophets and teachers. And, And just by way of review, let's have a quick look at Ephesians 2, chapter 19 to 22. Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which refers to the scriptures. And so I explained that that while prophecy does in a more narrow sense still take place, the offices of apostle and prophet no longer exist because the foundation of the church has been laid with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. The canon of scripture is closed. But I also explained that the teachers, especially those who hold the office of elder, also called pastors, continue to build on that foundation. But as is the point of of 1 Corinthians 12, and there in in Ephesians 2 as well, that that it's not just teachers who continue to build on that foundation, that that all of the gifts, all of the gifts are a building on that foundation. We also see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Let's go back to 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So you see that the body is building itself up in love. It's it's not just just the responsibility of pastors to build the church up in love. The body builds itself up in love and and. And we, we talked about how uh, chapter t- 13 of 1 Corinthians is, is often viewed as a love chapter, but the reality is, is chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all love chapters. 
They're all love chapters as they show how we are to love each other in the service of the church for the glory of God. How we've all been given gifts to be used not for, for personal aggrandizement, but for the building up of the church. We're not to be stingy with our gifts. That we're to be seeking to serve. That we all have a responsibility to be examining the, the, the gifts that God has given us and to be seeking to use those gifts as the church recognizes those gifts and to be, be working together for the building up of this church body. Now, while the first three gifts, the ones that we spoke about last week, apostles and prophets and teachers, referred to particular people serving in particular offices as gifts to the church, we're now looking primarily at the abilities themselves. And so, whereas, the, again, the office of the apostle and the prophet had no more place, but the office of, of teacher still continues, the, the, what, what does a teacher do? A teacher teaches which is also referred to as a spiritual gift. But this morning, I want to, to look at, at three of the, the so-called extraordinary gifts, that of miracles and healing and tongues, and as a, as a subset of that, the interpretation of tongues. And when it comes to the first one of miracles, I, I'm going to be spending most of the time here because it, it's foundational to our understanding of the other extraordinary gifts. But as we start, we need to ask the question, well, well, what is a miracle? What is a miracle? People have all kinds of different definitions and ideas of what a miracle is, but, uh, but I, I think R.C. Sproul's definition here is helpful. He says, a miracle, properly speaking, is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do. John MacArthur adds, A miracle then is, is an extraordinary event wrought by God that cannot be explained by any natural means. It involves God working outside normal natural laws and, and things like parting seas and, and floating axe heads and, and healings and so on. Now many of the events that we call miracles are, are glorious demonstration of God's providence but they cannot be properly considered miracles in this sense. When you receive a check in the mail at, at just the right time, it might be a direct answer to prayer, but it can't properly be called a miracle. When a baby is born, it is one of the most amazing things that you can witness, but it can't properly be called a miracle. They, they're common events and they follow natural laws. God providentially rules his universe. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. He is sovereign over everything. And sometimes, in His providence, God works outside of natural laws or suspends natural laws in order to achieve His intended ends. The Westminster Catechism says it like this. God in ordinary providence, making use of means, yet is free to work without, above, or against them at pleasure. 
So, so God is, is free. God, who is sovereign over the, the laws of nature that he created, is able to suspend them or overturn them at his will for his purposes. Now, most of our Bibles here in, in 1 Corinthians 12 use the, the word miracle, but, but in the Greek and Hebrew, there, there's, actually, there's actually no direct word for miracle. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the word is dunamis. It's, it's the same word from which we get dynamite. But some have, have wrongly read that meaning back into the Bible. The power of the Holy Spirit isn't named after dynamite. As Tozer explains, dynamite was named after the Greek word, and the Holy Spirit and the power of God were not named after dynamite. It's sim- the word dunamis simply means power. And that's how it's translated in Acts 1.8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The, the apostles received Holy Spirit power. Well, they received that, that power as a first installment in Matthew 10, as Jesus gave them power, and there it's called authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, and so on. But the book of Acts is chock-a-block full of miracles that were performed by the apostles. Peter heals a lame man in Acts 3. The apostles perform many wonders in Acts 5. Paul strikes Elimas the sorcerer blind in Acts 13. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead in Acts 20, just to name a few. But they were all performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The the power didn't originate with the apostles. It was the power of the Holy Spirit conferred to them. And so most of our Bibles refer to the to the book of Acts as, as Acts of the Apostles, but it should, should right, be more rightly called Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the apostles themselves would be, would be horrified to think that, that, that we would exalt them. In fact, that, that happened repeatedly when they, when they performed these miracles and, and people bowed down and tried to worship them, worship them and they, they tore their clothes saying, we're just men like you. It's never the men that are the focus. It is, it is the Holy Spirit who gives the gifts that is the focus. And the Holy Spirit doesn't even take the focus for himself. The Holy Spirit, his, his, his main role is to defer glory to Christ. And so in the same way, those miracles that are performed are to defer glory to Christ. Last week we saw how the ability to perform miracles was one of the signs of, of apostleship. In, in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Well, then, then that takes us for the, the re, to the reason for miracles. Well, R.C. Sproul, whose, whose definition of miracle I quoted earlier, says that Scripture teaches that Scripture's presentation or purpose of miracles indicate that they are not occurring today. It refers to Hebrews 2.4, which says that with respect to the message of salvation, that God also bore witness by signs and wonders and miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. 
Now, according to R.C. Sproul, and again, I quote, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 says, Miracles were given to confirm the message of the gospel, that, uh, that the message of the gospel was from God. Miracles in the narrow sense are granted by the Lord to demonstrate that a messenger has been sent by him with his words. In other words, he's saying that miracles only demonstrate that a messenger has been sent by God and that the canon is closed, so miracles have ceased. Now, I have a huge respect for R.C. Sproul. He has forgotten more than I will ever know. But I believe he's wrong here. He, he's, he's, here what he's doing is he's using a, a logical fallacy called begging the question, where you draw a conclusion based on your assumption. And so what he's saying here, he's basing, on his, his, he's basing his conclusion that miracles have ceased on his assumption that miracles only occur as an endorsement of the messenger and the message. Okay, that is a logical fallacy. Because it can't be, it, it, you can't say from Scripture that, that miracles only occur as the endorsement of a messenger and a message. Furthermore, Hebrews 2.4, it, it doesn't say that. It only says that the truth was confirmed by miracles. So we mustn't take one stated purpose of miracles and reduce God's aim in those phenomena to that alone. While it is true that one reason for miracles is to endorse the message, it can easily, easily be demonstrated from Scripture that, that this is not the only reason for miracles. For example, it, it's a stretch to say that the walls of Jericho falling or the sun standing still or crossing the Jordan on dry ground under Joshua's leadership was to confirm his message. It's a stretch to say that Elijah being fed by ravens or re resurrecting the widow's son were to confirm his message. It's a stretch to say that the miraculous deliverances of Peter from prison on one occasion and Paul and Silas on another were to confirm their message. There's more going on here than just a confirmation of the messengers and their message. Millard Erickson, in his Systematic Theology, points out that there are at least three purposes for miracles. He says the most important is to glorify God. To glorify God. That the, the, the credit goes to Him, not the human agent. And, and I think this is one of the failings, we'll talk about this later, but, but one of the failings of a focus on the miraculous and other extraordinary gifts that it, is it, it tends to lend itself to the focus on the people who are doing them. But just because that's the case, just because there's been abuses and errors, doesn't mean that, that, we, that we, we, I guess, throw the, the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. In biblical times, he, Erickson goes on, the second purpose was to establish a supernatural basis of the revelation. That's why it's referred to as signs. Signs that, that point to the fact that the, the messenger was giving a message that had come from God. But, but even as we saw last week, that, that some of those, those miraculous uh, signs didn't take place with, at all in, in the, the relation to the, to, to the deliverance of the message of Scripture. We saw that, that, that Philip had four daughters who prophesied, and we don't even know what they said. So it's not an, an undermining of the sufficiency of Scripture to, to acknowledge that there are other prophecies that are, are given that aren't inscripturated. And that there's other miracles that, that take place apart from the purpose of confirming Scripture. 
And the third reason that, that Erickson gives is, is simply to meet human needs. We see, we see Jesus having compassion on the needy, hurting people who came to him. And in this also God is glorified because it, it shows that the nature of God is as being merciful and loving and kind even to those, as we'll see, who reject him. And beloved, God has not changed. He is still a miracle-working God. He is still a loving God. He still seeks His glory. He still responds to the prayers of the people, even to the point of the miraculous. And to what Erickson says, I would also add a fourth clear biblical reason for miracles that comes directly from our text this morning, for the building up of the church in love. Remember, that's the point of, of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, that the, the gifts themselves aren't the focus of this text. The, the focus of this text is that, that we should use the gifts that God has given us for the building up of the body in love. That's, that's the message from, from uh, chapter 12 through, through chapter 14. In fact, th this, this idea of the church building itself up in love is the message of all of, of 1 Corinthians. So, so Paul is, is saying, as he says in, in chapter 13, that you can do all kinds of things but if you're not doing it out of love, you gain nothing. That's the point. So have the, have the miracles ceased? Well, I can't find any direct biblical evidence that, that says so. But then we can, can go to experience. Well, we, we, we don't see miracles, do we? In the narrow sense of the word, we, we don't see them very often. God suspending the, the laws of nature. But just because we, we don't see them in, in that sense, in the natural sense, doesn't mean they don't happen. I've never seen Mount Everest, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. My experience is, is not the authority. God's Word is the authority. And, and sadly, many in the, in the cessationist camp resort to this, going to experience, whether it's, it's their personal experience or whether it's their experience of, of people who've misused and abused the gifts or, or whether it's the, the experience of church history. There, there's, there's a, a, I believe, too much reliance on experience because God's Word is our authority. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Now, th this, is no, this is no straw man argument that I'm making here. I I've listened to a lot of respectable cessationist teachers on the subject. I've listened to most of the plenary sessions from John MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference, and I've read quite a bit on it. But this argument from experience comes up repeatedly. Experience is not authoritative one way or the other. It is easy to misinterpret experience one way or the other. What can be deemed miraculous might be a misinterpretation of events. But in the same way that the perceived absence of miracles might also be a misinterpretation of events, and it, and it might be due to other factors. Now it is true, as cessationists are quick to point out, that, that most of the miracles in the scriptures uh, occurred during a few relatively brief periods in redemption history. During the ministry of, of Moses and Elijah, sorry, of Moses and Joshua, of Elijah and Elisha, and, and of Jesus 
and the apostles. And, and really that leaves only, only a couple of hundred years in the 4,000 year span of biblical history where miracles were common. But we, we don't find anything in the scriptures on the, on the part of the people in those, in those texts. We don't find anything but the expectation of miracles. Furthermore, even cessationists like John MacArthur will readily admit that miracles will take place in the time surrounding the return of Christ. So I do not believe that, that the, the, the miraculous has ceased. Now again, people aren't seeing many miracles in our culture, but maybe it's because of our faithlessness. Or maybe it's because God is, is, is going to do something different in the future that He is not doing here now. And again, I, I don't have real direct personal experience of those sorts of miracles, but, but I can't base my conclusions on my experience or that of anyone else. Now, I have heard testimony of, of miracles taking place on the mission field. But could it be that, that miracles are, are taking place uh, according to, to what cessationists acknowledge as, as the purpose, or I'd say a purpose, of miracles, using Sproul's own words to demonstrate that a messenger has been sent by him with his word? So you hear stories of, of missionaries going into places where Christ has never been preached, and, and the Lord doing miracles through them for the, the testimony and the, the, the confirmation of the message that those, that those messengers are going with. But we need to, to, to understand really clearly here that our faith does not rest in miracles. Jesus performed many miracles, but he was rejected by the vast majority, even those who were the direct recipients of those miraculous blessings. In Luke chapter 17, of the ten lepers that he healed, only one returned to give thanks. In John 6, of the thousands that Jesus fed, only a, only a handful of disciples remained with them when, they told him, when, they, when he told them that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus and Lazarus in order to cover it up. Miracles alone do not produce faith, but they can confirm faith in the faithful. I'll say that again. Miracles alone don't produce faith, but they can confirm faith in the faithful. But in this we also see a danger particularly in the feeding of the multitudes and, and, and with the healings as well by Christ, is that the miracles can sometimes distract from Christ. Jesus told the crowds in John six twenty six, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so, so what they wanted was the material blessing of those miracles. They didn't want Jesus. They just, wanted, they just wanted to be fed. Everybody wants their perceived needs met, but very few understand that their greatest need is Christ. And in such a case, miracles can be a distraction from Christ himself. This is just one reason why the supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit in so-called word faith churches are so dangerous. 
people who don't really know Jesus or at best have weak faith focus on experience, not on the Lord himself. And, and so they have to go from one experience to another to get their, their so-called faith filled up. But all of this just serves to undermine the attraction of Christ and, and to undermine the message of the gospel. True miracles are always meant to point to Jesus. And tied to this is the fact that the people are, are just naturally attracted to the supernatural. They're drawn to, to the extraordinary, to the sensational. And this focus, again, can be a distraction from what can only be seen with the eyes of faith. And it can be a distraction from one of the most powerful miracles that we can see. And maybe we don't think about this as a miracle. But have you considered the miracle of regeneration? The miracle of regeneration is, is far more powerful than the parting of the Red Sea. Or than, than Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Or, for, or than the, the raising of Lazarus. The miracle of regeneration is often overlooked as a miracle, but it is far more amazing than any of those. And regeneration perfectly fits the definition of the miraculous that I quoted earlier. It is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do. Every time somebody gets saved, it is a miracle. Every time somebody is converted, it takes place according to the immediate power of God. Only God can change a sinful human heart. And every time someone is saved, God is overruling the sinful human nature. And so regeneration is a miracle. It is a miracle. And we might not see some of, some of those what, what are viewed extraordinary miracles, but this is a miracle that we can all see. This is a miracle that most of, it, most of us in this room have personally experienced. So we can thank God for, for, for that gift of, of regeneration. So may we have a right perspective when it comes to this miracle and to all miracles. The fifth miracle that we're going to look at in this study is the gifts of healing. By far, the most common miracles that we see in Scripture are healings. People are, are healed from ailments ranging from blindness to leprosy to epilepsy to paralysis to bleeding and so on. Well, physical illness is a direct result of the fall. Now, not all Sin is, is, or not all of your diseases are a, are, and, and ailments are a direct result of your personal sin, but they are a direct result of sin. In, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the serpent ten tempted Eve by telling her that she wouldn't die if she ate the fruit. And then she ate, and so, and so did Adam, and God cursed them with death. And sin entered the world, and, and, and death as a result of that sin. 
spiritual death entered the world and physical death entered the world. Adam and Eve themselves were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but they still died. Not spiritually, but physically. It, it took a long time. Adam lived for 930 years, over, over 10 lifetimes by modern standards, but he eventually grew old and died. And every person who has ever been born after that has died. Jesus came to overturn the effects of the fall, all of the effects of the fall, including spiritual and physical death. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now Peter refers to this passage as it relates to our salvation in 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Well, Matthew d relates it directly to physical healing. In Matthew 8, uh, 16 and 17, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And so here we see that, that Jesus overturned spiritual death and physical death. And that Jesus empowered his apostles to, to do the same, giving them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction in Matthew 10.1. Although there, there's gifts of, of healings throughout the scriptures, the vast majority take place in the Gospels and Acts under the ministry of Jesus and the Apostles. And healing also follows the, the paradigm that we just saw with miracles. Healing does certainly confirm the message of Jesus and his messengers, but was that the only reason? No. Like we saw for miracles in general, there's other reasons for healing. Heals take, healings take place for the glory of God. Before Jesus healed the man born blind in John 9, he said, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, of course, this healing did confirm Jesus and his message as well. It was, it was a living parable demonstrating that Jesus is the light of the world. But it was ultimately for the glory of God. Similarly, Jesus before he raised Lazarus from the dead, said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This was also a, a confirmation of Jesus and his message, and it was also a living parable of the gift of eternal life, but it was ultimately for the glory of God. There's another important reason for healing, one that we saw earlier, that, that God is a compassionate God. In Matthew 20, two blind men on the roadside called out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And we read that Jesus had compassion on them and healed them. And in Matthew 14, a, a great crowd came out to Jesus from the towns. And in verse 14, we see that he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This is also the place where in compassion, he miraculously fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. 
So, so that the, the miracles and, and here the healing take place in order to demonstrate the character of God as a compassionate God. Miraculous healing took place under the, the, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, but again, we need to ask the question, have they ceased? Well, we have to say that the answer is no because of another important reason for healing. Again, the one that, that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, for the building of the church. When we see others miraculously healed, they, we are encouraged in our faith. We're encouraged. Well, like other miracles, healings alone are never the source of faith, but they are again an encouragement to the faithful. Beloved, I believe the church needs this as much as ever. And you might not see healings happening around you. And, and, and they, they, but they do take place. They still take place. I've heard testimony from, from some of you to, to this regard. And, and for, from in my own case, that, that my drug abuse landed me in a psychiatric hospital with drug-induced psychosis. I thought the TV was talking to me. But while I was, was in that hospital, the, the, the TV did have a message for me. As I, as I turned on the, the TV room, the TV in the TV room, and there was a televangelist, not one of those, those money grabbers, but, but a real evangelist preaching the real gospel. It said that anyone could be forgiven if they turned away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so without ever having heard the, the, the full gospel before, I, I, I said, Lord, whatever's left of this wreck of a life is yours. Just please forgive me. And he did. A miracle took place that day. A miracle of regeneration. But that wasn't the only miracle that took place that day. God healed my mind. I went from being hardly able to speak to being coherent. So whenever I stand up here and, and say anything that makes any sense, it is a miracle. It is a miracle of God. Now, of course, the effects of the fall are not going to be completely overturned until the return of Christ. But we can experience supernatural, physical healing now. Turn, please, in your Bible to James chapter 5. Verses 13 to 16, we read, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Well, if healing doesn't pl take place anymore, what's that passage doing there? There is no sense in which that, that passage has been fulfilled that you can ever say that Scripture says that that no longer exists. These things still happen. We are still to pray for miraculous healing. But so often, most often, what happens is... is 
is people go to God as, as a last-ditch effort, as a last resort after they've, they've been to the doctors. They've tried all the medicine. They've tried natural means, but they don't go to God until they're absolutely desperate. But shouldn't God be our first port of call? Shouldn't we go to God first when we're facing physical ailments or any ailment? Why is it that we so often wait until we're desperate to go to God? C.H. Spurgeon is commonly known as the, the Prince of Preachers. And he's often quoted, I, I quote him often for his, his, his theologically rich, pithy statements. But many people don't know about his healing ministry. Conwell's 1892 biography of Spurgeon says that, that no man probably in England or in America in this century has ever healed so many people as did Mr. Spurgeon, although he himself was not a physician and never wrote prescriptions. Now remember, this was written while many of these people that had been healed by Spurgeon were still alive, and, and he writes that there are now living and worshiping in the Metropolitan Tabernacle hundreds of people who ascribe the extension of their life to the effect of Mr. Spurgeon's personal prayers. They have been sick with disease, nigh to death, and he has appeared, kneeled by their beds, and prayed for the recovery. Immediately the tide of health returned, the fevered pulse became calm, the temperature was reduced, and all the activities of nature resumed their normal functions within a short and unexpected period. Now, I'd never heard that until yesterday. One man in 1855 arose from his bed of fever the same day that the physician had declared his case to be very critical and appeared at the meeting in the evening to the astonishment of his acquaintances, saying, Mr. Spurgeon prayed with me this morning. I have been divinely healed. Another in the same season appeared one Sunday walking decidedly and firmly down the aisle to a front seat who for years had always limped into the service. He was often heard to murmur and once to shout glory to God as he was giving praise to his divine master for having used Mr. Spurgeon for his miraculous recovery. But it's interesting that many would, would claim that, that Spurgeon is a cessationist. It doesn't sound like a cessationist here to me. Many experienced miraculous healing under the ministry of Spurgeon, and, and I have experienced miraculous healing. Some of you have experienced miraculous healing. But we cannot rely on our experience or the experience of anyone, even C.H. Spurgeon, to determine our doctrine. Similarly, we can't rely on on godly men who, who know the word, even men like R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur to determine our doctrine. We need to go to Scripture. I can't stress this enough. We cannot rely on any man, either his experience or his teaching. Scripture is our sole authority. Doctrine comes through scripture experience can be misinterpreted and it's essential that we interpret our experience through the lens of scripture so as healing ceased what do the scriptures say finally and and 
briefly, I, I want to, to look at, at tongues and the interpretation of tongues. We're, we're, we're going to cover it a lot more thoroughly when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. But just, just by way of a, of a quick overview, we need to go back to, if we want to understand the, the gift of, of tongues, we need to go back to, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Where Jesus said to, to his, his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Well, that power came in Acts chapter 2 on the, the, on the day of Pentecost when, when the disciples were, were gathered together and, the, and there was, were tongues of fire. That, well, first there was a sound of rushing wind that went through the room. And then tongues of fire appeared over each of their heads. And each of them began to speak in tongues. This is the amazing part, that they spoke in tongues, in, in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, and in verses 5 and following, we see that, that in, there, in Jerusalem, there were, there were men from every nation under heaven. And they were bewildered, because each of them heard what was being said in their own language. So, so these men, the, these apostles, were speaking languages that they didn't know. And those who were gathered around heard, those, heard them speaking in their own language. Well, Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Holy Spirit, says the difference between Pentecost and the situation in Corinth lies in the fact that those who heard tongues in Jerusalem already possessed the key for their interpretation. They understood the foreign languages since they were their native tongues, and no translation was required. But by contrast, in Corinth, it was necessary for there to be an interpreter. And, for, and Ferguson doesn't believe that there's any reason to think that there was any essential difference between the nature of the tongues that were spoken in those two contexts. But what is the context of, of 1 Corinthians? We saw this a few weeks ago, that, that what was happening is that, that people were coming into the church bringing ecstatic utterances that, that looked very much like the, the, the pagan worship that they had come out of. And so there was disorder and disunity in the church as a result of these gifts. But then you had other people who were, were overreacting to these things and, and saying that, that, well, those things don't exist altogether at all because they, they saw that the, the distortion and the, the misuse of those gifts. And I explained when I preached on this before that, that if there was ever a time that this was the case, it is now very much in the same way that was happening in Corinth 2,000 years ago. But the context, again, of this passage is the, the local church. And the, 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 the tenor of, of Paul's argument here is actually a censure of those who were, were using the gift of tongues in a way that was bringing disorder. We'll talk a lot about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But what, what was happening is in the nature of, of, of corporate worship that, that, that people were, there, there was all kinds of people doing this and there was disorder. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that the people are going to think you're out of your mind if they see this. 
And I don't know what would be a more accurate description of, of so much of what passes itself off as the gift of the Holy Spirit in the form of tongues in, in many churches today. It is unbiblical chaos. And God is dishonored. And the church is not edified. That is the purpose of the gifts. So when it comes to the, to the gift of tongues, if that is still going to take place, then, then there is to be one who speaks, and then there is to be another interpreter who weighs up what was said. Orderly worship. Now there's some debate as, as to whether there is, this is, is still the, the, uh, the, the different languages like it was in, in, in Acts chapter 2, or whether this is, this is a, a heavenly or an, an angelic language. In 1 Corinthians 13.1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm, I'm a noisy gong or a clang, clanging cymbal. Now, now, I believe here that in the context that, that Paul is using hyperbole, he's, he's, he's exaggerating to prove his point in the same way that he says that if, if, I, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. It's hyperbole. And in the same way, he says, that if I give away all I have to the point of delivering up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's, it's again, it's, it's an exaggeration. I, 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 I'm open to being corrected from Scripture on this, but I don't believe that, that what is happening here, I do not believe this is an, an angelic language he's speaking of. I believe that this is a language that, that fits patterns and rules of language that still exist to this day. I can't see anywhere in Scripture that, 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 that would, would... I think it's very dangerous to base our doctrine on, on such a, a small point of Scripture that, that can be so easily interpreted in, in different ways. So again, I, I don't believe that, that, that this, is, this is an angelic language that is being spoken of here. Now again, I can go to experience... And I have some, of ex some experience of, of these things, but we're, again, not going to rely on experience. But, but I have seen this, this misused in so many different ways. And I've seen Scripture twisted. I, I've, I've been several times been told that if I don't speak in tongues, I don't have the Holy Spirit. That is a lie. That is a lie. J Jesus said that if you don't have my spirit, you're none of mine. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Paul says here that in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. We were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now there is a sense, as we saw, that, that gifts uh, you can be filled with the Spirit for different purposes, but he goes on in, in verse 30 to say, do all speak with tongues? And the implied answer is no, all don't speak in tongues. So, so to take this one gift and to, to distort it and say that it is necessary to do this in order to be filled, or it, that if you don't do this, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, it has is, it is put people in all kinds of bondage. And I've also seen, seen and I've done this, I've done this. I, you might be shocked to hear this, but I spoke in tongues. 
No one's falling off their chair. I was involved in a, in a group that, was, that was, was actually quite cultic and where, where these, these, these tongues were, were so often used to manipulate. And people would have what was called a, a word from the Lord, a word of knowledge that was used to control people's behavior. It was used to saying things, it's, it's on the level of thus saith the Lord, and that if you don't do what, what we said to do in tongues, that you are rejecting the Holy Spirit and you are rejecting the Lord. That's not just my experience, that is common. That is common, and it is a travesty. So again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that, that he says he speaks in tongues more than anyone. But he says that he would rather speak five words with his mind. His point here is that the church is to be built up with the gifts. And what was happening under the label of tongues was doing just the opposite. Well, again, we need to ask the question, has it ceased? Well, we, we can't rely on our experience. But again, I have indirect experience. Many of us have heard of, of stories where missionaries have gone to a place where the gospel's never been proclaimed and they speak and the, the natives hear, even though, they, they, even though they, neither one of them speak the same language. But again, these things can't be relied upon. It's scripture. It's scripture. And so I don't believe that, that these gifts have ceased because I don't believe the scripture says so. Now next week we're, we're going to, to look, Lord willing, at, at the, I guess, the, the unextraordinary gifts of, of, of the Holy Spirit. And the gifts that, that many of you have. And I, I, I don't want those, the, this, this focus on the extraordinary to, to take away from or, or to limit our desire for the gifts. I don't want to react in response to our experience or the experience of others and to reject the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's my earnest prayer that, that we would all be seeking the Lord and and, and asking him to, to, to reveal to this body what gifts we have in this church and to be using them for the building of this church, for the glory of his name. And that the Lord would add more gifted people to this church so that we can be more effective for the ministry of the gospel in this community and around the world. So may we be careful always examine the scriptures and to interpret our experience in light of the scriptures, not looking to any authority but the scriptures, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us for our sanctification and for the building of the church.